our focus on the parable of the prodigal son and maybe why that's not a great title. So let's go to Luke 15 and I'll just read out the first two verses and then we're going to jump to verse 11 for the first half of the story. That's on page 1093 of these Bibles if you want to follow along. Let's say Luke 15 if you're following it in your own Bibles. So it begins, now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And Jesus told them three parables. And the third one begins, there was a man who had two sons. The young one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a far away off, the father saw him. And was filled with compassion, he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead, is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Let's pray very quickly. Father, may the meditations of my mouth and the posture of all our hearts be welcoming, accepting, and loving towards you. In your name we pray. Amen. So hello everyone. Everyone, my name is James. I'm the pastor here, which is a role I really enjoy a lot. The worship this morning was was really wonderful. There's something about that that we all come here kind of vibrating at different frequencies, right? Our weeks will have looked different. All of us will have encountered different things in our personal lives and our spiritual lives. But there's something about music that kind of uh, gets us vibrating on that same frequency. Uh, For some of us, though, it may have been hard, actually, to sing about the goodness of God when maybe our weeks aren't that good if we're going to be really honest with ourselves. So what I hope is throughout this sermon, we can get to a point of recognizing how good God is, even when maybe we don't feel like it. This is always a really interesting 
sermon to preach is an interesting passage to preach on. Now, we're looking at homecoming throughout the year. This is kind of our theme for the year. And over the next couple of months, we're going to be looking at the parables of Jesus. And so if there is anything that crosses the intersections of parables and homecoming. I think it might be this parable. That's why I got it first before anyone else could preach on it. But I wonder how many of you are sitting here thinking, yeah, I've, I've heard this one before, James. Uh, in this room, how many times do we think we have collectively heard a sermon on the prodigal son? Like probably hundreds by this point. I've preached on it multiple times and I haven't really preached that often actually. But it's one of those wonderful stories that speaks to us. But I think actually so many of us think we know this story because this story is so perfect for the way that so many of us think about Christianity and think about how we become Christians. That once we kind of feel sufficiently bad about ourselves, once we recognize that we are sinners, then and only then the Father can love us. And the story kind of follows that thread. The son rebels against the father. He hurts him. He lets him down. He runs away. But when everything is lost and when the son really hates himself, he goes back and he is accepted by the father. And likewise, all we need to do to be loved by the father is to accept our own fallenness, our own brokenness. And we see this echoed in the sinner's prayer. Now, I'm still, I say I'm new to Christianity. I kind of came to it as a bit of an adult, I suppose. And so I wasn't really aware of the sinner's prayer thing that is especially big in North America. Uh, But the sinner's prayer seems to be some variation around, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm terrible. But I hope in spite of the fact I'm terrible, you can love me anyway. But I think that most of us have completely misunderstood this parable and it's meant we have misunderstood just how deep the Father's love goes. Also, before I start anything, the, calling it the parable of the prodigal son is just a terrible idea. The son, either or not, really the subject of this story, the father is. So we're going to go with the parable of the loving father and his two lost sons. And we're going to spend one week looking at the younger lost son, and next week we get to look at the older lost son. Let's get straight into this. Jesus, who, remember, is speaking to the Pharisees. He's speaking to the people that really know their scriptures well. They can quote it inside and out. They know it better than I do, probably better than most of we do. They know their scriptures well. However, they've kind of missed the point. And they don't realize how important the Father's love is and how Scripture reveals that. So Jesus, saying this to the Pharisees in the presence of sinners, begins by saying, Well, anyway, he begins by saying, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So there's a couple of pieces here. Some of us will be aware that there's a real cruelty in his words. Father, give me my share of the estate. What he's saying there is, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could have your stuff now. Which is 
not like a good way to talk to your parents. Like, I'm not great with my dad, but I haven't gone quite this far yet. Actually, my parents keep spending our inheritance on, like, holidays and extensions or something. But, you know, we're going to let, that's, that's fine. They can do what they want. He's like, no, I don't want you spending it on nice holidays and extensions. I want my money right now. But what's more interesting and what we might miss here is that he doesn't say, I want my share of the inheritance. He says, I want my share of the estate. You see, when you inherited back then, you inherited everything. You inherited the land, you inherited the money, sure, but you also inherited those business contacts. You inherited those relationships. You inherited the responsibility, and that's the key thing. You inherited the responsibility. The younger son doesn't want that. He doesn't want any of that. He just wants that money. And this is how Jesus is beginning to paint the picture of how reckless and ultimately what a terrible person this son is. He is not designed to be a sympathetic character at any point in this story. Jesus continues, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Again, there are little pieces here that are so interesting when you really spend time as to what Jesus is trying to say here. When he says not long after that, we think, oh good, he's moving the story on, like I want to get to the point here. But actually, Jesus is saying so much is so little. See, back then, land deals would take a really long time, like months, maybe even years, to make sure you got fair price for the property. But the youngest son isn't bothered about that either. And so this land that has probably been in the family for generations, this land that supports not only his family, but the servants around it, he's just getting rid of it on a fire sale. He's not even getting a decent price for it. It would mean that the servants had a third less land to work. It would mean a third less income for everyone. And he doesn't even want to get full value. We are not supposed to feel sorry for the son at any point. And so this next part of the story should be satisfying, actually. It's kind of a nice morality tale, right? This guy's a jerk to his dad, and then he gets his comeuppance. And the story could quite easily end there. And it's a great story about respecting your parents. See, you waste their money, and then you end with nothing. We hear how the son who has spent all of his money on wild living now has to hire himself out to work with pigs. Now, this is really significant because as much as I think this pig is adorable, uh, they're considered to be unclean animals to the people that Jesus is telling the story to. Even those outside the nation of Israel who considered pigs to be clean, they still thought working with pigs was like the worst job you could do. It speaks of the son's desperation. But it also shows where the son has been spending his money. And this is really crucial to understand later on. We also hear from the older son how his younger brother has been squandering money on foreign prostitutes. Now, this is really important too. We'll get to that soon. The point is that the son is the worst. We're not supposed to feel sorry for him. But here's the turning point. It's, or this is what maybe most of us think is the turning point. 
because the sun hits rock bottom. He realizes the terrible mistakes that he's made and he begins to utter this mantra, Father, I sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now this line is so significant. It's so significant. But it's, it's not for the reasons that we think. And I think this is where I and so many of us may have understood, misunderstood this story. Because for a long time, as I've said, I think we've used the younger son as something of a poster child for being repentant enough to be accepted and loved by God. At this point, he really hates himself. He has nothing. He's destitute. But now he's in that place of annihilation and of nothingness and having nothing. Now the father will accept him. The son is kind of uttering his version of the sinner's prayer here, right? Father, I sinned against heaven and against you. Father, I sinned against heaven and against you. So here's the thing. All the scribes and the Pharisees who were playing very close attention to this would have recognized that line. I've sinned against heaven and against you. It's a really significant line. It occurs just once in the Old Testament. And it's actually in a place in the Old Testament that probably most of us know, but probably also don't recognize because the context is so foreign to us. Father, I'm sorry, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And Jesus and the other teachers of the day knew that when you put one line from those scriptures, you're talking about the context surrounding it as well. It's not just about that line. It's all the pieces that surround it, especially when you quote one line that doesn't appear anywhere else. I've sinned against heaven and against you. Does anyone know out of interest? It's Pharaoh, says it to Moses. So he says, I sinned against your God and against you. Jesus wouldn't say God because you wouldn't use the divine name, but saying heaven is interchangeable at this point. I've sinned against your God and against you. So Pharaoh's the only guy to say this. This is after the ninth plague in Exodus ten sixteen. He says, I've sinned against your God and against you. And if you remember your Exodus story, and I'm sure plenty of you do, you'll remember that immediately after this, the Pharaoh changes his mind. He doesn't let the people go like he says he's going to. His repentance is insincere and his heart is unchanged. And so the mind-boggling and perhaps heartbreaking realization that Jesus is trying to show us is that the younger son doesn't actually mean what he's saying. He, just like Pharaoh, is offering an insincere repentance. He, just like Pharaoh, is saying what he needs to say so that the suffering will stop, but not because his heart has changed, not because he's truly sorry. You know, we hear over and over again how Pharaoh's heart remains hard, how his heart doesn't change, and the younger sons is doing the same. He doesn't feel bad. He doesn't feel repentant. He's just saying what he needs to say so he can eat. 
And doesn't that change the way we look at the story? But here's the most important part for me, I think, is that his insincere words and his unrepentant heart, they don't matter. And we see just how much they don't matter in the next part of the story. Because he returns to the father and the father runs to him. This is significant for a couple of reasons. The first of which is that men of stature didn't run. That was considered to be a very disrespectful thing. They would never lower themselves to running. But the father does it anyway because his son is there and he loves him. He wants to be close to his son. There's actually a much darker reason for the father running at this point. And it also shows the sort of homecoming that the younger son was probably expecting. See, there's this ritual called the Kezazar ceremony that was quite popular around this time. And the Kezazar ceremony was reserved exclusively for Jewish people who had lost their wealth to the Gentiles. That's non-Jewish people. And the younger son, not only has he wasted his money, but we know he's wasted his money with the Gentiles. What's worse, as I said, is we hear about him sleeping with the prostitutes as well. And in a culture where bloodline is absolutely everything, in a culture where you can trace your family back to Adam, the idea that you would spend your money and spend your blood in another culture, he could not have done anything worse. I cannot stress this enough. This son could not have done any more to hurt his father anymore to break the relationship with the people that cared so much for him. And in the Kezazar ceremony, when a son who had lost everything returned to the city, he would be brought to the city gates where the elders would smash a vase, which symbolized the way he had forever broken the relationship with his family and with the community. And by the first century, by the time we hear this story, the Kezazar ceremony had escalated to a point where often the son was beaten and sometimes beaten to death. So the father isn't just running to the son because he loves him. He's running because he has to get there first. He has to get there before the other people get there and attack him. And so the son begins to utter those empty words, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Words that the scriptures only mention once elsewhere. Only uttered by someone in an equally disingenuous place of repentance. But it doesn't matter. Because here's the thing that we so often miss. This story is the third in a series of three. The lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost sons. And in each of these stories, it's the finder that is the focus. Not the thing they're trying to find. And it's the the focus is the joy that the finder has upon finding what has been lost. The coin isn't found because of anything the coin does. 
The sheep isn't found because of anything the, co- the sheep does. The son isn't found because of anything the son does. But there is joy over what is found. To put it bluntly, the son isn't loved because he repents, but he may well repent because he is loved. And so it is with us. We are not loved by the Father because we repent, but we may well repent because we are loved. Because we are seen and because we are known by the Father who loves us so very, very deeply. And I think this new understanding can break down so many of those kind of toxic aspects of Christianity. Because I really, I, I cringe when I hear the sinner's prayer or the, kind of the idea of the sinner's prayer that has been so influential and so important in so many people's relationship with God. But it kind of starts us in the wrong place. It says that what's required of you to enter into the love and relationship with your perfectly loving father is you see yourself as, as garbage. So many of them begin something like, dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Like that's the first thing that God sees when he looks at us. As if that's the first thing the father sees when the son returns. Does he see a sinner or does he see his son? Does he see the person who has done all those things that have broken his heart? Or does he see the one that he loves? Why don't our sinner's prayers begin something along the lines of, Dear Lord, I know that I am called very good because I am made in your image and likeness. I am your masterwork. I am your child. And I'm a child that you can never, that you will never abandon. Like, why aren't those the prayers we start with? Maybe that should be the seed that we plant in new believers. Because those things are hard to believe, right? Like, I find it hard to believe that now. And the first time I read this sermon out, it's like, James, it sounds like you know what you're talking about. (laughs) And I don't. I'm struggling with this stuff all the time. All the time I'm struggling with this. And so don't think because someone sounds like they know what they're talking about, they do. Like, I know it's true. I know it's true. And Jesus shows me every day that it's true. And yet here I am struggling to believe it. And I think one of the things that sinner's prayer does is it puts the emphasis on us being right rather than realizing that it is God running towards us. I was talking with my friend Danielle this week who speaks a lot of conferences. She's an absolutely incredible speaker. I was talking about this sermon and about God loving us and us, you know, thinking that he just, that he doesn't. And she told me that she was speaking at The Unstoppable Conference a few years ago. That was the name of it, The Unstoppable Conference. And she had this incredible message about how the only thing that could stop God's love is you. That's her great message. And she was just about to go on stage and was praying before she went on stage. And God said, hey, Danielle, that's a great message you've got there. It's a shame it's not true. (laughs) So her message was then just her deconstructing her own message about how she had radically underestimated how far God's love goes. Like, like the idea that we could stop God loving us, the audacity to say that we could. Because if you want to see how useless trying to stop God loving you is, 
Jesus shows how that just kind of doesn't work out, actually. Right here, and what we'll finish with today, I think is an incredible insight into what God-centered homecoming looks like. This is the kind of homecoming, this is the kind of welcome that we as a church need to be showing and sharing and holding each other accountable to. Because the father's restoration of the son in this story is really, really comprehensive. He doesn't leave an awful lot out. First of all, he says, bring him the best robe and put it on him. So the best robe it only exists for guests of honor. It says that you matter. It says that you're more important than anyone else in this room to me right now. And so those servants who all of five seconds ago were ready to drag this son to the city elders and beat him to death, all of a sudden they're like, oh, I'll go and get the robe instead then. Like that's how, <laughs> that's where he begins. Like first of all, he restores him to himself. Like you think you're worthless? No, you get the best robe. Next he says we need to put a ring on his finger It symbolizes kind of two things. One, only family members wore rings. So it shows that he's immediately restored to his family. The family that he did a really good job of burning his bridges with. He's restored to that family. The other interesting thing about the ring is that it's kind of like giving the son a blank check. See, when you went to the market and when you conducted business deals, your family signet ring was what showed them that your family was good for payment. Essentially, he's giving the son the family credit card. So the son who has shown more completely than anyone else has ever shown him that he cannot be trusted with money, he gives him so much more. Like, This guy should not be trusted with anything. And the father gives him everything. Shoes also are only worn by family members. So any of those lies that the son had told himself are not being worthy to be called his son, they're gone. They're blown away in seconds. The father makes that really clear. Of course you're my son. Like, you're my son. Nothing you do can change that. Put shoes on his feet. Kill the fattened calf. This is one of my favorite ones. So this was something that was done maybe once or twice a year. Sorry, not a year, not a lifetime. It was a super rare thing, only reserved for the highest of celebrations. The other reason this is so significant is the fattened calf would feed about 200 people. And they didn't have any great ways of preserving food back then. It's like they had refrigerators or freezers or anything. And what that meant is that everyone was going to be invited to this party. They needed like 200 people at this party. So everyone was going to be invited. So for all the lies that the son may have been telling himself about not being accepted or that his father would be ashamed of him, that's not the case either. All the father wants to do is celebrate with the son who was dead and is now back and alive with him. All the relationships the son has damaged, the father restores. All of them.
And, and if you can't hear God's voice and God's heart in the Father's response, then, then let's, let's keep working on that. The Father says, you think you're worthless, but you get the best robe because you are my child. And I love you, and there is nothing you can do to change that. You think that I'm hung up on the ways that you've damaged and disrespected me and the ways you've wasted what I've given you? I have this ring. It gets you even more. And it's yours because you are my child, and I love you, and there's nothing you can do to change that. You think that I'm embarrassed by you. You think that I don't want people to know that you're mine. I've invited everyone to the party because you are my child and there is nothing that you can do to stop me from loving you. In this story, I believe that Jesus is revealing the love of the Father in a way that had up until this point never been imagined. And the Pharisees that think they know better hear it, and the sinners that know they need it hear it. And I dare say there's probably quite a few of us here today that need to hear it too, because I know that I do. So I wonder... If we finish today with a, with, a, with a new sinner's prayer, one that we'll say together, I'll, I'll say a line and then we can all repeat it together. Maybe there's a piece of, of you that, that needs healing from that kind of difficult <laughs> genesis of your faith. Maybe you're doing well and you just need a reminder of how loved you are. But this has kind of been a mantra of mine for the last couple of days, so... So hopefully it's helpful for you guys as well. Um, let's, let's bow our heads and, uh, and you can repeat after me. Dear Father, you're doing okay. That's good. <laughs> I know that I am your child. And I'm sorry for all the times that I forget that. But today, I ask that I see myself as you see me. Your poetry, your masterwork. Your child and very good. May my words to others as well as myself reflect that always. Let every day with you be a better understanding of who you are. And how you love. Amen.